Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. This episode will be the launch of my third book called Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving the Good Ship Zion. And um, I will give an overview of the book. I'll read the introduction. I'll talk about where to get the book. Um, let's start with where to get the book. The book is now available on Amazon. I'll leave a link to, um, in the show notes to Amazon. If you go to that link, you'll find the Kindle version. You'll find the physical book that you can order and have delivered. You'll also eventually find the audio book. That will be there in a month or two. I'm grateful for voice talent and my friend, Dallin Bradford. If you've listened to any of the first two books, he's the voice on those books. And I'm grateful to have Dallin um, doing the third book. Um, I'd like to first just read the names of the seven chapters, the titles of the seven chapters, um, to give you a high-level view, view of the book. Chapter one is Loving Members Who Are Foyer Sitters. Chapter number two, is it okay to turn down a calling? Chapter three is ministering to those with church-generated pain or trauma. Chapter four, how should we treat those who leave the church? Chapter five is supporting members dealing with death. Chapter six is better support for single Latter-day Saints. Chapter seven, supporting couples in their decisions about children. And I'm grateful for... um, a lot of the team that's helped make this book possible. Marcy McPhee and Trina Caudell are my two editors. They've been with me in prior books. They're terrific human beings, gifted editors, and this book would not be possible without them. Grateful for my publisher, Cedar Fort. They have published all three books. I'm grateful for Bryce Mortimer, the president of Cedar Fort. He's been with me since day one, believed in me, my ability to be an author in the first place. I'm grateful for Drew Huffaker, who's a senior member of the leadership team there, a dear friend, and just a steady voice of support for me over the years, um, helping these books come forward. Not only is Cedar Fort and an incredible team put this book together, but they also get it distributed to Amazon, to other places you can buy it online. They get into Desert Book and other LDS um, bookstores. And um, so I'm grateful for their efforts. I'm also grateful for my wonderful wife, Sheila. Um, She's uh, been my wife for 30 years, and she's a terrific human being, mother to our six children, multiple grandchildren. Her life is completely focused on serving other people. And I'm grateful for her love and support in my life and and in so many other people's lives. And she's just a terrific person. I'm glad to be married to her. Um, I'm looking at my notes. How can you help? Well, what you can do is what you've done with the other books is read them, um, share them with others. Um, Specifically, it helps if you leave a review on Amazon. That helps other people connect with the book. Um, When the book is at Desert Book in a month or two, really appreciate you leaving um, a review on at Desert Book. And this is not a book where you have to read from front to end. Each of these seven chapters I mentioned are standalone chapters. So some may resonate with you and you want to read. Others may not, and that's fine. Um, the format for this book is like my other books. It's um, and the podcast. It's bringing forth voices we don't traditionally hear in an effort to create Zion. Um, all the proceeds for this book, like my first two books, go to um, a memorial scholarship fund for a young man who died by suicide in June 2016. Gay teenager in Utah. Stockton Powers. He's great parents, Marcy, um, Allison, 
and George who love him and did everything to support him, but they still lost him to suicide. They've started a scholarship foundation. I'll link to it in the show notes, standingforstockton.com. And my royalties go directly to that scholarship fund to honor this wonderful young man who we lost and to hope and pray we can lose less as we create the good ship Zion where there's more love, support, and a welcoming culture. And um, now I'd like to just um, go over the introduction. So I will read a fair amount of the introduction just to give you the 30,000 foot level of the, the background for this book. And then in the podcast, I will just read a little bit about each chapter to give you an idea. So now for the introduction. In October of 2014, President M. Russell Ballard gave a talk, Stay on the Bolt and Hold On. Over the years, I've enjoyed reading and rereading this talk. And once while walking in my neighborhood, I reflected on the idea of a boat, which is a metaphor that President Brigham Young used quite a bit. My mind pivoted from the blessings I gained by staying in the boat to what I can do to make the boat a more welcoming place for others a place of belonging where everyone feels needed included. I've met with hundreds of good folks who want to stay in the boat, but wonder if they are truly welcome and needed in the boat. In fact, some of them even feel pushed out. During that walk on an evening in July of 2021, I started to tweet ideas what we can do to make the boat a more welcoming place. For example, there is room in the boat for those who never served a mission or who are an early release missionary. They have gifts and insights to help us create Zion. Here's another one. If an LGBTQ Latter-day Saints wants to come out at church, let's allow them to do that. And then let's throw our arms around them, recognizing their courage and show our love for them. It helps them to know there is room in the boat, room for them and they belong in the boat. These were a part of a series of tweets on the subject, some of which are now chapters of this book. People offered many thoughtful responses as they brainstormed how to make, make the boat a more welcoming place. One response from Matthew G. Holland of Las Vegas, Nevada, no relation to the Holland family, especially stuck with me and provided motivation for this book. He wrote, it's just a really big boat. What a powerful and simple concept. Earlier in my life, I would never have looked inward to consider what I can do to help people currently in the boat feel like they belong. I assumed they were having the same fulfilling boat ride as me. If someone bravely opened up about not feeling comfortable in the boat, I put it all back on them to get comfortable, perhaps even cause them to feel embarrassed for sharing their feelings, concerns, or experiences perhaps shaming them to get in line so they'd figure till you sit down and stop rocking the boat. All of this just adding to their wondering if they are truly welcome. I failed to realize that Good Ship Zion is strong enough to be a safe place we want to stand or sit, and I need to learn to be comfortable with that. Perhaps it strengthens us if we bring our whole selves as we jointly work to come unto Christ and build Zion. In short, it was hard to see the beam in my own eye. Much of my church training is focused on bringing others into the boat, yet I have heard less discussion looking inward how we can improve the boat itself for our current and prospective members, nor is there much listening to the feelings of those considering leaving the boat. Through one-on-one -on -one conversations, I have learned that it is seldom because they're lazy or want to sin, as I falsely assumed. 
many good members want to find a way to stay in the boat. Perhaps an unintended cultural challenge of being members of the restored Church of Jesus Christ with the fullness of the gospel is it is easier to look outward and see the faults of the world and other churches instead of looking inward to see the changes we need to make in our own lives and in our circle of influence to help Good Ship Zion be more welcoming. And then I quote a wonderful quote from President Thomas S. Monson. I won't read that. Um, This reminds me that I have to develop fresh perspectives and new tools to help others stay in the boat. I believe Good Ship Zion should be a place where there is no belief or behavior hurdle to feel welcomed, loved, or accepted. Our congregation should be a welcoming place for all, not a place to pull out our, our measuring sticks of judgment. We are called to be gatherers, not sifters. Yes, we all make baptism covenants to qualify to get on Good Ship Zion, but evaluating whether or not others are keeping their covenants is not part of keeping our covenants. Since we are all imperfect and not expected to be perfect, each of us is on an individual journey, and we need to support others as we make our way forward. His sister, Alberto, of the General Relief Society Presidency said, quote, Let us follow the Savior's path and increase our compassion, diminish our tendency to judge, and stop being the inspectors of the spirituality of others, end quote. While the gate is wide at the congregation, level the temple is different as it has a stricter belief and behavior hurdle. But in making the Good Ship Zion a more welcoming, accepting place, let's not use the temple red questions to decide if others or ourselves feel welcome in our congregations. Let's follow what Christ taught in his own ministry. And then I share some examples. And the idea there is the temple is different than the good ship Zion. The good ship Brian represents our church and our congregation and is a gateway to the temple. I don't think Zion is sameness, but that everyone brings their unique and, di- and needed differences to lift the burdens of others. I often reflect on the city of Enoch that was translated, the benchmark of a Zion people. And then I'll read from Moses. And the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. No poor among them. Um, Poor in money or spirit or self-esteem or love from others. Their combined unity enabled them to lift the hands of those that hang down. They were not individual silos disconnected from others working out their salvation. Rather, they were a people who were unified in lifting the burdens of others. My feeling, and I'm not a historian by any means, is there were differences in the people of Enoch. Perhaps there were varying ideas about the civic issues of the day, but they seemed to use any differences in their background or current perspective to be united to help others. They created space on good ship design for differences, consistent with Elder Quentin L. Cook's words, quote, with our all-inclusive doctrine, we can be an oasis of unity and celebrate diversity. Unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we foster an atmosphere of inclusion and respect for diversity, end quote. Um, I grew up in the 1970s in a very homogeneous environment. Um, One aspect of this environment was sameness. Everyone in my circle is very much the same. Same race, religion, heritage, 
educational goals, same political party. And as far as I knew, everyone was straight and cisgender. In many ways, it was a wonderful growing up experience. But I falsely concluded that Zion equals sameness. Over my lifetime, my circle has grown wider, which has enriched my life as I've met people different than me. I have friends who are different races, ages, sexual orientations, gender identities, education levels, legal status, and so on. My vision has grown, of Zion has grown. The good ship Zion no longer means sameness, but rather using our God different differences to unify love and support each other and to lift those who suffer. In this book, we will visit a few topics to improve creating space on the boat. In doing this, we can help investigators and new members feel more comfortable about getting on the boat as they see people like them on the boat, such as those with honest questions and concerns, single, tattooed, or wounded from life's challenges, and feel enough of a testimony belonging to be baptized. Further, they may watch how we treat people leaving the boat, since they may not be totally sure how church membership will work out long-term for them, but still want to be involved with a group of people or as kind to those getting on the boat as to those leaving the boat. This book is similar to my second book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. In that book, we discuss the following topics, how to improve our culture to be more non-judgmental and more loving, measuring progress by coming unto Christ and not callings, of women in the church, ending pornography use, hope-filled repentance, creating better understanding of mental illness and suicide, overcoming scrupulosity, variations in missionary service, manifesting love even in politics, ministering to those with questions. This book's add to this list with the chapters I've mentioned. As you read, I invite you to consider what you can do in your circle of influence to prove, improve Good Ship Zion so more Latter-day Saints feel welcome in a sense of belonging and that others will want to join us. These chapters have stories from members with first-hand experience. I'm grateful for their courage in sharing their experiences, and I'm honored to bring their voices forward to a wider audience. They are some of my heroes. And then I conclude um, the introduction with a wonderful comment. Um, from a quote from Sister um, Bonnie D. Parkin when she served as Relief Society General President. Chapter number one, loving members who are foyer sitters. During a leadership meeting with other YSA bishops, the question came up, should we pass the sacrament to the foyer sitters? There were comments like, they really should be in the chapel to receive the sacrament and show respect for the ordinance. There may have even been a comment or two like if they were really committed, they would be in the chapel. <clears throat> we turned to the general handbook and learned there's no direction on this topic other than the sacrament should be passed to all members. After about 15 minutes of discussion and remembering we often go the extra mile to bring the sacrament to ward members too sick to attend church, we felt it was best to err on the side of grace and pass the sacrament to those in the foyer. I don't remember making any comments during the meeting, but I may have joined in with those who measured commitment to the gospel by where they sit in the building. This got me thinking for the first time about this group of Latter-day Saints. In church meetings, one of the lessons my leaders have constantly tried to teach me 
about giving advice or deciding a question is this, what is the underlying gospel principle? For me, the principle in this situation, we are called to be gatherers, not sifters. This chapter is much more than about people sitting in the foyer, but how we can consider this relatable example, because we all know people in the foyers and may have sat there at times ourselves to scale this principle to other situations. We're trying to do the right thing. I hope this chapter causes us to pause and consider the big picture. I know my initial gut reaction often changes when I take time to try to see things from both sides. Sides ponder the underlying principles and work to see the larger perspective. I invite all of us to consider what we could do in our circle of influence to be gatherers. Several years ago, my wife Sheila and I visited our friends Tom and Kathy Kelly, who were mission leaders in the Italy-Rome mission. We love being with the Kellys. There's something special about being in a mission home and feeding the spirit of hundreds of missionaries who are helping people come into Christ through a restored church. President Kelly, who um, passed away in earlier 2023, and we linked to his obituary in the footnotes, um, somebody I deeply miss, um, great man, taught me an important principle about the missionary handbook. He shared that sometimes mission leaders create uh, mission roles in addition to the handbook. This may be born out of a need to answer a specific question or a situation or from a desire to make sure the mission is obedient. However, President Kelly felt this is not consistent with church administrative structure. While the handbook didn't answer every question, it contained the principles to make a good decision consistent with the direction of church leaders. Just as President Kelly taught, taught me about not adding additional rules to the missionary handbook, we should not add rules to the church handbook which does not prohibit passing the sacrament to those in the foyer. This follows the same principle that leaders are given when issuing temple recommends to not, quote, add add any requirements to those that are outlined in the temple book, end quote. Um... In an episode 555 of Listen, Learn, Love, Renee Davis talked about her remarkable conversion story, then becoming less active and finally finally returning to full activity. She shared that she feels like a fringe member and often sits in the foyer during church services. As we recorded her podcast, I felt I was talking to one of Heavenly Parents' finest daughters who was doing much good in her life and dealing with complex challenges. It was the first term I first time I'd heard the backstory of a foyer sitter and why this was the best she could do. I felt Jesus would be right there with her in the foyer, loving her. I felt a bit of a rebuke from the Spirit for passing judgment on people who I'd falsely conclude were less faithful because they were foyer sitters or fringe members. And I wanted to also read in this chapter a little bit about, um, I asked on Twitter this question, should those in the foyer be given the opportunity to partake of the sacrament? 1,500 responded, 93% said we should offer the sacrament to those in the foyer. Um, But then there were people that gave their specific examples, and these really stood out to me. 
my most sacred experience taking the sacrament was at 37 weeks pregnant, sitting in the hallway, trying not to faint. I was still blessed to take the sacrament. Jesus was there. He came to me exactly where I was, was and recognized my efforts. Yes, I can't think of a better place for God's redeeming love than the foyer. I believe that Christ would want all of us to come unto him. I'm just trying to, I went, when I went to church, I often ch- sit, choose to sit in the foyer because my anxiety would not allow me to sit still and not freak out being crowded in a pew. Parents with cry, crying babies and little c- kids were my companions. We all deserve the opportunity. And so these are just stories of people, um, real life people, and teaching a broader principle here. In this not very serious but important chapter, and in inclusion, I write these words. I hope we can f- reflect on these examples and consider how we can do a better job in our area of influence to help all Latter day Saints feel welcome and needed, not adding unnecessary roadblocks to participation. There may be many reasons someone be in the foyer, either literally or figuratively, and our job is to love them, not judge. Some don't feel worthy. Some don't even feel worthy to be in the foyer and don't feel they belong, but they do. They are needed. Zion is not complete without all of us bringing our gifts and strengths to build the kingdom. Let's focus on Jesus' example to be gatherers. Chapter 2, Is It Okay to Turn Down a Calling? Do we or does our culture create a feeling there is a fork in the road where we either need to choose between accepting all callings or leaving the church? Or is there a middle option where we may decline a calling but are still understood by ourselves and others to be a committed Latter-day Saint doing our best to build Zion? I am concerned that some leave our church not because they don't have a testimony of the gospel or don't have a willing heart to serve, but because they are overwhelmed and current callings are by the prospect of continued callings. I saw this firsthand during my mission in England when a high counselor left the church. He was one of the most committed and faithful members I knew, spending many hours a week in his callings and making time to support us as missionaries. One day we had learned he resigned from all his callings and was no longer to participate in the church. When we went to visit him, he told us he still believed in the church but was exhausted need to take care of his marriage, family, health, and career. I've thought about this good man over the years and wondered if, if everyone involved in this situation could have found a more middle ground with a more sustainable approach to serving in the church. And so this is a chapter, and I'll just read some of the headings. What does the handbook say? Um, second heading is good inspiration is based on good information. And there are stories woven in here. Uh, one of the stories I wanted to read is um, from a gay Latter-day Saint in Norway. Yeah, we have a sprinkling of gay um, LGBTQ stories within here, too. It's not an LGBT book, book per se, but they're members of our faith, and I like to elevate their voices. Um, I hope I can say this Norwegian name correctly. Ad Warren Strand Angerman, A-D-D-B-J-O-R-N is his first name. Adborn. <laughs> After returning to Norway, I decided to be open with my leaders about being gay, basically leaving up to them whether I should remain in the church or not. Their response was calling me to a ward clerk, a calling I had for over 20 years. After our stake presidency was reorganized, 
I was called to serve on the stake high council. I was worried about members' reactions to me being on the high council as an openly gay man. I also wondered if I were to be the token gay member of the stake, did they extend the calling to me just to show how inclusive the stake is? After visiting the temple and resting with the Lord in prayer, I did say yes. I told the stake president he got the whole package, gay, beard, man bun, and pride ring. His answer was, you are called because of who you are, not in spite of it. When I was set apart, I was told to be who I am and not try to be someone whom I believed others would like to be. I have had the confirmation of having been called because I'm needed in this calling, and I just happen to be gay. I do know that I am in this calling because the Lord has more confidence in me than I have, but because of his confidence, I know I can do this. Um, here's another heading, go to stain, sustained place like Joseph Smith. Another heading, extending the calling. And quite a bit of content there. Another heading is pondering the calling. And that's for people um, receiving a calling. Another heading is determine the support you need in, to fulfill a calling. Another heading is a trial run. Another heading is an open end date. And I'll read just a paragraph in that section. Some wards or stakes may have a culture of fixed, formalized time frames for callings, although there is no such language in the handbook. Over the years, members may have developed expectations how long people should serve in callings. For example, the gospel, gospel doctrine ter- teacher always serves for three years. While this likely results in an orderly process for callings and releases, it could draw undue attention when there is an exception. Someone may need to be released earlier than the expectations that is baked in the culture. The person being released may have feelings of unease or shame, wondering what their peers are thinking about their release. Another section title is Insecurities and Expectations About the Calling. Another heading is If You Feel Impressed to Say No. Another heading is Preserving the Option to Say No So You Can Truly Say Yes. And this includes a section from licensed clinical um, professional counselor and Latter-day Saint, Dr. Jennifer Finlay, Finlayson Fife. And um, I quote her for a couple of pages on this topic and something she had written previously. Very thoughtful. Another heading is if you feel impressed that you need to be released and some thoughts there. And then I'll just read the conclusion to this chapter. Notice that many of these suggestions, sharing more about the individual circumstances before accepting a calling, offering or asking for a time to pray about it, a trial run, an open end date, are beyond the usual extend the calling yes or no process. There is room for different ways of extending and accepting callings. In general, I like creating space for Latter-day Saints to decline a calling if they feel is the right thing for them and their families, and not feel they are letting down their heavenly parents or the church. I think improving good ship design in this way is a sign of our growth as individuals and at a church, making space for all of God's children to contribute to the great kingdom-building work in and out of callings. Um, Unlike my friend from my mission in England who left the church overwhelmed in his callings, I hope we can find the balance between our personal lives and contributing through callings. My hope is this approach helps more members contribute at their own pace, resulting in a more sustainable and effective approach to building Zion. Chapter 3, Ministering 
to those with church-generated pain or trauma. This may be the most important and sensitive chapter of the book. And I'll just read a, a little bit from this chapter. If the, most of us have trauma that come to our lives, um, a car accident and so on, However, if the trauma originates from within our church community, it can be more difficult to heal. Perhaps our natural fight-or-flight response leads us to consider separating ourselves from the church, even if we have a fundamental testimony of our restored doctrine. The road to healing often includes learning to regain trust in a faith community that can walk with us and support us. But is it possible that our restored church, even with the fullness of the gospel and the priesthood keys, can be the source of trauma? It may be easy to be defensive of the church we love so much, but everyone's experience is their own. I know many wonderful Latter-day Saints who are walking the road of church-generated trauma, including many who want to find a way to heal and remain members of the church. We can help them heal. First, let me say I believe in the church and its restored doctrine through the prophet Joseph Smith. All the good in my life is traced to church membership. However, while I believe the gospel, why I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is perfect, I do not believe the institution leader members are perfect. It's all a work in process to match the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like the words of Sister Carol F. McConkie of the Young Women's General Presidency, quote, The gospel of Jesus Christ does not marginalize people. People marginalize people, and we need to fix that. I've asked my friend Tanya Baker Miller, an active Latter-day Saint and licensed clinical social worker, to write most of this chapter. Tanya, a dear friend, was on episode 501 of our podcast, and the sheer number of listens from that episode helped me better understand the need for the insights and principles Tanya provides. She has a unique perspective on this topic from both her clinical expertise and our family experiences. I believe Tana Clinical's work in this chapter she wrote are groundbreaking and very needed in our faith community. I'm grateful for her. Now let me read from Tanya Miller's um, contribution to this chapter, some of it. The topic of church-generated trauma can be difficult to discuss on a few levels, but the first step is acknowledging that church-generated trauma or pain is an actual thing for those who have not experienced this type of phenomenon, allowing for the possibility that church on some level can be a source of trauma might be uncomfortable. It might even feel as though such an acknowledgement is engaging criticism or of the church, a betrayal of sorts. And then she quotes a researcher who says, quote, trauma is about loss of connection to ourselves, our bodies, our families, to others, and to the world around us. This loss of connection is hard to recognize because it doesn't happen all at once. It can happen slowly over time as we adapt to these subtle changes, sometimes without even noticing them. Then these are the hidden effects of trauma, the ones we try to keep to ourselves. We may simply sense that we not feel quite right without ever becoming fully aware of what is taking place. That is the gradual underlying undermining of our self-esteem, self-confidence, feelings of well-being, and connection to life. Our choices become limited as we avoid certain feelings, people, situations, and places. The result of this is gradual constriction of freedom, is loss of vitality, and the potential 
and the potential for fulfillment of our dreams. Um, and then she writes here the, about trauma. Writing and teaching about church-generated pain and trauma requires a humbling level of spiritual attunement. I definitely do not claim to always have that level of spiritual sensitivity. As such, in the process of writing this chapter, I've developed a deeper level of gratitude for guidance for the Holy Ghost. I've learned to rely even more heavily on promptings, what to explore, what to write, what, when to repent, because I recognize I am walking a fine line. The fine line I'm referring to is the narrow space in which one can shift from the essential task of examining and dry, describing issues related to church-generated trauma and potentially become cynical about or critical about the church, its leaders, and its members. It really is not difficult to point out our problems, calling people out for not being perfect, etc. It could be easy to get in that headspace, knowing that the pain and trauma many members of the church hold and hide as origins in church-related experiences. But learning to navigate these difficult topics without drifting into jaded perspective can provide an opportunity to rely more heavily on the Spirit. And um, just some wonderful thoughts there. Um, and then she gets into um, defining church-generated trauma, and she describes it this way, partly, at least part of this section. Church-generated trauma presents itself in multiple forms. The following we've explored and defined in this discussion, capital T trauma, um, lower T trauma, that's number two, number three, attachment trauma, and number four, vicarious trauma. And then she goes on to share an experience of her brother um, early release from his mission as capital T trauma. And that's a really thoughtful um, personal experience that helps us understand how this um, clinical understanding is applied to a real-life situation. Now, I'm just flipping pages in the chapter because this is a really wonderful chapter. I want you to read it versus me communicating it on a podcast. Number two is lower T trauma. And um, and she kind of talks about this as being the drip torture. However, time, however, over time, a community effect builds up. So the next drop of water acts as an immediate stressor and trigger, and the next, the drip, 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 and how that can be a real experience for people. And um, she talks about not fitting the mold of kind of lower drip trauma, infertility, marital status, physical appearance, children leaving the church, um, socioeconomic background, being LGBTQ, etc. Attachment trauma is number three, something I didn't know anything about before reading her work. Um, it's really helpful for me to understand this better as part of my baptism covenants. And I'm just um, skipping pages here. This is a longer chapter, rightly so. And I'm getting keeps, and chapter four is vicarious trauma. Um, and I'll read that. Vicarious trauma may develop in those who witness another trauma, either literally by watching it or symbolically. Um, such witnesses may become emotionally overwhelmed themselves. Um, vicarious trauma springs from a deep empathy coupled with a lack of power to create change for the victims. Um, so that's a little bit about what I feel sometimes for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints that I love, but I also see sometimes the pain in their lives and, and feel that pain vicariously. 
And so um, this is a really wonderful chapter. And then we have contributions from other authors experiencing their own and sharing some of their own experiences and how they've navigated that and um, stay in the church. One is just under the initials PR. It's an anonymous story. And then Andrea Lindstrup, um, marriage and li- licensed marriage and family therapist, has wonderful insights. It was on episode 452. A lot of this book also links to podcasts of people that have been on the podcast. You can go deeper to hear their story. Ryan Anderson um, talks about this subject in episode 443. He contributes to this chapter, just a wonderful author and very thoughtful Latter-day Saint. And um, I'm just skipping pages, and I'll just read um, some of the conclusion. I hope and pray this chapter helps bring more understanding tools and perspectives to this important topic so more Latter-day Saints can heal from church-generated trauma. And I quote a quote from Elder Holland. It's the church culture, not it's the church culture, the vessels, not the gospel of Jesus Christ, the healing oil that is the source of church generated trauma and spiritual abuse. When Jesus was baptized and betrayed at the rest of Garden Gethsemane, Peter attempted to protect the Lord with his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus told Peter to put the sword away. For they all take their sword, shall perish by the sword. Likewise, we should not get our metaphorical weapons out, but should work to support each other's healing when someone has been hurt. What would the Savior do for each person involved in a difficult situation? I believe we'd reach out um, to each person with this soothing touch. And I won't read all of the conclusion. I'll read this. I am deeply grateful of all the contributors to this chapter. I've learned so much for them. I'm grateful for Latter-day Saints with different skills and gifts to help us improve the Good Ship Zion. I believe that's part of hastening the work to see, address, and help our members heal from church-generated trauma, and we are stronger for, for this. I hope we learn to talk about these uncertain subjects in the walls of our church and our family circle so we're more aware of the work and resources to heal. We are better people when we discuss these sensitive topics and counsel together and how to improve. I believe many Latter-day Saints are yearning for type of these discussions because of their desire to better mourn, bear, and comfort and become a more Zion-like people. Chapter 4, How Should We Treat Those Who Leave the Church? Um, I just believe um, it's this is a two-way road that takes work from everybody. I hope people walking either road will We'll find helpful thoughts and ideas in this chapter where we can reduce conflict and find common ground. Brene Brown refers to the human tendency to create community around common enemy, common enemy intimacy in her book, Braving the Wilderness. Common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply we hate the same people, the intimacy we experience is Intense, gratifying, and an easy way to discharge our outrage and pain. It's not fuel for real connection. This mindset can result in parables like the wheat and the tares to create common enemy intimacy, to confirm the in- inevitable divide, deciding that we are the fe- wheat and those other folks are the tares. 
this may feel like the best way to be emotionally safe in our these are the last days bunker, but it does not consider the words of Alma not to send others away, including those not in the church. And thus, in their prosperous circumstances, they did not send away any were naked, or that were hungry, or that were athirst, or that were sick, or that had not been nourished. They did not set their hearts upon the riches, therefore they were liberal to all, both in the bold and the young, bond and free, male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those stood in need, Alma 130. Um, and I liked that. Um, I quote President Uchtdorf in saying kind things, the things we say about people who separate from the church can awful influence people joining the church. This is me, not Elder Uchtdorf. You can read Elder Uchtdorf's quote in the book. I believe investigators want to be part of an organization that's just as kind to those leaving as those joining. They may watch how we treat people, not sure how church will work out for them long term. Um, and there's an experience I'll share um, in the book, and it's I'll share it now. I attended my first affirmation, which is an LGBTQ support information in 2017 as a new ally, where Troy Williams, Executive Director of Equality UCA, spoke in a general session. He is gay and no longer in the church. I felt a bit anxious as the session started, worried I might hear things critical of the church or encouraging me, a new ally, to leave the church. However, Troy spoke about the importance of allies within the church. He didn't ask me to leave. In fact, he encouraged me to stay, saying, if you fear your role is to stay in the church, I want you to stay. I want you to know that I support you. In some ways, it was almost more validating for me coming from someone who was no longer in the church. He didn't make a blanket statement that we all should leave to support him. He met me where I was and honored my personal desire. Troy laid an important building block of grace in my life. Later in 2021, President Oaks spoke at University of Virginia about reducing conflict in the legal arena, making important points that I have brought up application to all of us. He stated, in contrast to the tendencies of the judicial branch to decide complex issues with a winner-take-all advertorial process, the legislative process in Utah provided an opportunity to forge enduring relations and craft, craft workable solutions. President Oaks then quoted the same Troy Williams. Here we have Troy Williams, Executive Director of Equality Utah, and I'll let you read the quote. Um, later learning that President Oaks quoted him, Troy tweeted, Wow, I wasn't expected to be quoted by Dallin H. Oaks tonight. Surreal, the context was building empathy across political divides to find common ground, something our country desperately needs. And so um, there are a lot of differences between Elder Oaks and Troy Williams, um, but their example of trying to, um, in this experience, um, reduce the business is good. Um, I talk about Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. New Zealand Prime Minister, who has since um, stepped down from being Prime Minister. She's raised in the church, but no longer participating in our family. A chance to hear her at Harvard University graduation in May of 2022, when we were there to support our daughter, Emily, as she was seeing receiving a degree from Harvard Divinity School. But I loved her words, and then I reflected on the earlier visit between President Nelson and Prime Minister Arden. 
And, you know, just where she was with her station with the church, um, no longer a participating member, and President Nelson's very kind public comments about her work and their common goal following the mass shootings in the mosque in the city of Christchurch. And President Nelson just role modeled this um, with his love, respect, his public statements of kindness towards her. And to me, President Nelson didn't sell out our doctrine. He just taught our doctrine in that practical example. And I'm just reading some headlines here. Non-transactional relationships. Um, my friend Harper Don Forsgren tweeted, we as members of the church need to stop focusing. We need to love people because our love will bring them back and instead focus on we need to love people because they deserve to be loved. And Steve Young in his book, The Law of Love, makes a similar point um, where I quote in the book, and I won't read that whole quote in the interest of time. Um, the comment for those who have left the church is a title. Um, and most want to stay. Um, but I do write this. If one steps away, it often comes to the pain of transition or loss of belief, loss of community, and possible judgments of them by people they trust. Pain is the real and primary emotion that can lead to a secondary emotion of anger. Sometimes the person leaving feels anger and looking for a place that ch anger, channel that anger, directs it past to the people who are closest to them. Further, they even might want others to find what they have found and come in the direction away from the church. However, I encourage those who no longer participate in the church, even those who feel the pain of transition, not to pressure others in their direction. This can be especially needed in families where younger children are present. An older child parent leaves and want the other family members to do the same. Perhaps you can follow the example of Troy Williams. A chapter, a title here is Ultimate, Ultimatums versus Four Power Words. Um, and um, part of this is, you know, I will cut you off if you leave the church and you won't be a member of our family. And part of it is, People that leave the church have an ultimatum that you have to leave the church with me, or if they're the parents of children, you won't have access to your grandchildren if you continue to stay in the church. Um, I did a podcast interview with a couple in a same-sex marriage, Jordan Hanks and Adam Paulson, episode 409, and Adam um, says, I would never ask my family to do something like that, meaning leave the church, in order to want them to do all I want is to be treated like I'm being treated. I respect their choices with their religion and beliefs, and all I'm asking from my parents is the same for mine as well. Jordan, I would never want that for them unless it's their choice, unless they got there themselves. I would never want them to be the cause for that or expect them to do that. In fact, I see their struggles working through this, and I really want them to lean on their Savior in whom they have a lot of faith. He has worked miracles in their life before. I don't know how they would get to where they are um, without their Savior. So um, grace is a kind of a theme of this chapter. Um, honoring agency. Um, one of the things I try to do is not do the shaming comments for those that step away from the church. And um, here's a, what I've written here. I also refrain from saying my friends who have left the church, you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. Um, I have said that in the past, listeners, but I don't say that anymore. Yes, I invite people who have left the church not to pull others in their direction, but 
But I also understand that leaving a religion where often one is given years of time, service, financial contributions is different than changing sports teams, cable companies, or gym membership. It's a change at a deeper level. I've tried to show grace by willing to listen and support their journey, and I hope they show grace by supporting me to stay a member of the church. Um, next chapter uh, subhead is thank you for your service. And um, it kind of talks about how members feel radio silence, and um, we can do better to continue to mourn, and bear, and comfort as their journey is taking them in a different direction and ask them how they're doing and keep that relationship um, going. And there's wonderful stories in this chapter um, about people in or out of the church finding common ground. I wish I had read these stories long ago as I home taught people that were no longer active and didn't quite know what to say or not to say. And generally, people want to talk about their story to people that they feel safe opening up to, and that can create authentic, important connection. Another subtitle here is Support for Latter-day Saint Parents. I'll read some. If you're looking for the type of community, um, parents that need community around, I have adult children that have left the church, um, episode 571 of our Listen, Learn, and Love podcast with my friend Geraldine Renshaw and my brother David Osler. And they started a Facebook group called Bridges. And it talks about it in the book. It's a support group for parents with adult children. And um, people need community often for walking this road and, and things that bring other parents hope and perspective and peace. Um, quotes from some Ensign articles that are helpful talk about the Christofferson family. Preserving family relationships is a key thing. Also talk about the movie Home Alone. <laughs> if you remember the scene at the end between eight-year-old Kevin and the elderly neighbor Marley, um, Kevin's still alone in his home, but Marley's reunited with his family as they show up for Christmas. And one of my editors transcribed that movie. It's a beautiful moment of reconciliation. And I actually get tenderhearted reading that because I think our Savior loves when there's reconciliation and there were differences in that family and they're able to reconcile. And it's back to this idea that, you know, with families being so different politically, religiously, um, we have to work harder to preserve the relationship. And this chapter talks about preserving the relationship with our ward members that are no longer active, our family members. It is a two-way road and we both need to practice these principles to honor everybody's journey and see the good in each other and reduce divisiveness and leave this at the Savior's feet. And um, I'm just, I am, it's probably all I'll say on this chapter. It's just that I invite you to read this chapter. It's an equally important chapter um, to bring us together better as the same human family. Chapter five, supporting members dealing with death. Before we started our podcast in Early 2018, I had little experience or training how to help someone grieve the loss of no, a loved one. Not knowing what to do or say, I erred on the side of saying very little and asked no questions or shared memories of the deceased after the funeral. My first experience seeing someone grieve was in my early teenage years when a few of my close friends lost one of their parents. Each time I remember going to the funeral, giving my friend a hug, but never talking to my friend again of the death of their parent. Maybe I felt that talking about it would bring up the pain surrounding the loss of a parent, but I now realize my silence prevented me from being 
better friend. It wasn't until listening to guests in our podcast talk about the death of a loved one that I gained new perspective tools and increased understanding of helpful things to say and do and things that were usually not helpful. It's been an eye-opening journey as I now realize some of the things I said made their loss more difficult and my inaction added to their grief and isolation. I worry that an unintended consequence or knowledge of the and belief in the plan of salvation is that our culture may not uh, support ongoing grief. I sometimes hear stories of Latter-day Saints feeling guilt or shame for grieving because they know their loved one is a good place and they will be together again. They may wonder to themselves, why can't I move on? Don't I have enough faith? Family members or friends may ask them the same questions, perhaps because their own discomfort around another's loss. This, this only adds to their burden. Also worried that our culture creates grieve and move on role models when we talk in positive terms about someone who has moved on from the, following the death of a loved one. We even may mention their happiness, upbeat nature, and positive outlook. But when we talk about the faithfulness of a missionary staying on their mission instead of coming home for the funeral of a family friend, this framework risks creating the impression that deeply faithful and believing Latter-day Saints do not have ongoing grief that they're sad for a short time and move on. This also implies that being unable to move on is connected to a lack of faith or understanding the gospel. Further, it may pre-program those yet to fake grief about how to respond. Will be, they be one of those faithful Latter-day Saints during a significant loss? Grief should not be perceived as an indicator of gospel faithfulness. All this can needlessly add to the burden of the one grieving. We talk about Jesus and some of his things with Lazarus. I believe one of the best ministering principles to sit with people in their pain without platitudes that minimize the complexity of their situation. I love these words from President Nelson, quote, mourning is one of the deepest expressions of pure love. It is a natural response in complete accord with thine divine commandment. Thou shalt live together in love inasmuch as thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. Um, then I've asked, um, really brave people to contribute to this chapter and I introduce them as follows. As you read the following experiences, I hope all of us will develop better tools and skills to help others further. If you are grieving the loss of loved one, I hope these stories will help you find an increased measure of hope. Um, the first person writing in this chapter is Gretchen Norman Evans, who lost her brother Jacob to suicide. Two months later, her sister Elena Norman Coons and Elena's twin 18-month-old daughters, Ruby and June, were killed in a car crash. All of these um, have been, guests have been on the podcast in case you want to hear more of their story. Second one is Al Alexa Norton experienced sudden and tragic death of her father, Daryl, at the age of 54 while he was skiing. Number three, Kristen Porter lost two babies at birth. One lived only two days and the other was stillborn. Number four, Brian Young is the author of Meant for Heaven, A Little Girl's Journey to Paradise. That is daughter's Holland's death from brain cancer at age four. Number five, Julie Clough wrote Miracles in the Darkness, Building a Life After Loss. After two young children died in a car accident, which she was the driver. That happened on Mother's Day. 
And the last one is Jamie Clemmer wrote about her 10-year-old son Sawyer's sudden death, starting with a seizure at school in her book, Heartbroken, but not, per- not Broken. The majority, of this, majority of this chapter contains these stories. At the end of this chapter has a discussion of the principles and insight learned so we can do better, including resources and concepts to help someone considering suicide. This chapter also contains um, references to other people who have been on the podcast, like Jeff and Camille McDonald, McConnell, who, whose son Wesley, age three, died in a choking accident. Reed and Amber Blackburn. Reed has been our, a couple of our kids' from seminary teacher at the local high school whose daughter Tessa was stillborn. Um, Mindy Holgram, whose husband Corey drowned at age 35 in a community pool during a family swimming outing. They're the parents of four. And the last child was born six weeks after Corey's death. And Joe Horton, whose wife Ann died of multiple sclerosis after 43 years of marriage and raising two sons. She was diagnosed before they were engaged and told to expect 10. Um, I'm grateful for all who contributed in this chapters and the story on the podcast. Grief can be pounded by loneliness when you're left to process alone. Jamie Clemmer said, we live in a culture that seldom openly speaks about grief. In some instances, we are even embarrassed to show our sorrow. Why are we ashamed to cry? Why do we feel that sharing sadness is unacceptable? We can effectively mourn with those that mourn if no one is willing to share their heartache. Someone said, as soon as my brother died, we took all the pictures down on the walls. We didn't want to talk to him and we pretended like it didn't exist. Anytime I edged toward talking about my son at church, people sort of put me in my place. I realized quickly that it's not a conversation people want to have. So I just process it. I stopped going to church for 10 years because of it. All of us has had very complicated and sacred journeys. And the only way I can think we could come to Zion and also become the disciples Christ wants us to be is by doing exactly that, listening, learning, and loving. We cannot do that alone or in a silo. So when we open up ourselves and go to some of these uncomfortable places, we're not only helping ourselves, we're helping other people to know they're not carrying that weight alone. Um, I hope we can all act on our impressions to help Good Chip Zion be more welcoming and subjecting of Latter-day Saints dealing with grief. Our baptism covenants to mourn with those that mourn comfort and those need of comfort and lift burdens is never more applicable than one of our friends experienced loss. So that's a little bit about this chapter. We also have Tam- Tamu Smith um, talking in a Facebook post. We put that in the chapter about um, the funeral of her mother and some of her experiences. The sixth chapter is titled Better Support for Single Latter-day Saints. When I returned home from my mission service, I was ready for the next chapter of my life, which include finding an eternal companion and getting married. In my final interview, my mission president encouraged me to make finding my eternal companion my number one priority. He also advised that I not create a set time frame which might make marriage a forced decision driven by a self-imposed deadline or cultural pressure, which were not in line with Heavenly Father's plan. Without a deadline, he gave me space to find her. In my late 20s, I was at peace with my efforts to find a wife. I was doing my best and felt no condemnation from my heavenly parents. However, church culture was not at peace with me. I felt defined not by the good things in my life, such as education, employment, or church service, but by being single. 
I felt my marital status became my identity within Latter-day Saint culture and to the people around me. Further, these unmet expectations caused me to look inward in an unproductive and unhealthy way. It's a little bit of my own feelings walking this road. I'm a little bit. <clears throat> and then I'll just read some of the headings, and there's lots of contributions by really thoughtful members. The first section is Never Married Latter-day Saints. And um, I will just I'll read this. In our YSA ward, we work to create a culture focused on things the YSA could control, like coming into Christ, living commandments, and receiving temple ordinances, and less on things they couldn't control, like getting married. Our goal as a YSA in award leadership, my wife and I and the other um, couples, um, our goal is not to try to get everyone married. That goal may diminish a single person's sense of worth. We figured that marriage was already pretty high on their radar map. We wanted them to understand that they're whole now, not that they had to wait until some future event like marriage, graduation, or financial stability. We want, didn't want the word experience to remind them they were not ma- married. Further, we didn't measure our success in our assignment with a scorecard of how many YSAs got married. Being aware of the culture pressure to get married, Sheila would sometimes share, it's better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. Um, so that was just some cultural things we tried to, to create. But the number one idea is single people need to feel whole and complete now. And that's based on our doctrine. They're all literally spirit children of heavenly parents, and they love us. Um, section two is what not to say to single members of the church. Some wonderful insights. And then we have contributions from Valerie Shumway Barton, um, who's been on the podcast. We have a contribution from Chelsea Smart. We have a contribution from Letzia. Hope I said your name right, Wetzel. Um, Trina Caudell um, is our editor, also has a contribution here. Mara has a contribution. Um, Sherry Cassell, who's been on the podcast. And some of this, there's a little bit of, I haven't mentioned it before. We just, if anybody feels feelings of suicide from the earlier chapter of dealing with death or anything, please call, text, or um, reach out to 988. Um, Todd L. Goodsell, wonderful thought as a as a single Latter Day Saint, and um, just a wonderful situation there that I learned so much from Aaron, A I S E N Asen, a wonderful story from Aaron. And I'm flipping pages as fast as I can not to. Um, the next section is never married gay and lesbian members, so that's a subset of single members, but it's a little bit different. Um, I didn't realize that was different until I started to listen. And so there's some wonderful contributions from Ben Chilotti, um, Charlie Bird. Um, we quote from his book, um, his vision for Zion. His book is called Expanding the Borders of Zion. Um, we quote from Claire Dalton, who's been on the podcast, is an, a seminary teacher in Arizona. We quote from Jacob Guy. He has a wonderful contribution, um, wonderful um, young man. And then we shift to divorce members. And that's a, obviously a different category. Uh, Marcy McPhee, another editor, um, bravely shares her story. She's been on the podcast and really thoughtful contribution on how to support um, divorce members. Cecilia 
as a contribution. Ellie Springer has a contribution. Annette Tuckett, Tucker, Mary Teresi. Um, then we shift to widowed members. And Mindy Holgram, who was on the podcast, who I mentioned before her husband died in a, a drowning accident, shares um, some of her story there. And Ryan Anderson, we mentioned him earlier, also talks about this space. And um, then I finish with a conclusion. So really important chapter to better support single Latter-day Saints for those of us that aren't single. And also the principles in here may help you if you're single, just to feel more of Heavenly Parents' love for you. Chapter 7, Supporting Couples and Their Decisions About Children. Um, Many Latter-day Saints do not fit the norm. Their situation may be so unique we've never considered what to say and how best support them. Um, and so some of the situations that we talk about, couples not able to have children, couples with um, couples who plan to have no children, couples who delay having children, couples with small families, couples who adopt children, couples with both biological and adopted children, foster parents, couples with special needs children, working moms. And a lot of these um, examples overlap. And so that's kind of the big overview. And then we have wonderful contributors that are walking this road. And as I read their stories, these are once again, the stories I wish I'd read 10, 20, 30 years ago. So I know what to say and better support someone. Um, I'm not very good at reading names. I don't know. Elena Hamill. Um, thank you for your contribution, Steve, Paul, um, under the section of couples with plans to have no children, Jack. Um, that's a very untypical situation, but those members, um, hopefully we feel welcome. Um, couples who delay having children, couples with small families, and the couples delay having children, Jonathan Aldridge writes a wonderful contribution. Couples with small families, Autumn Brooke White, um, Shay Bennett. Shoot, shoot, S writes a section there too. Tara Gailey, Gally, Kim S writes a section. Um, couples who adopt children, Valerie Shumway Barton has another contribution. Her husband, Dennis, also has a contribution. Paul has a contribution, an anonymous birth mother. Um, couples with both biological and adopted children, Jessica L has a contribution. Jen, um, Jennifer Babcock. Um, Susie, the foster parents, we have some stories there. Susie McCorriston, Tiffany Strong, hers is under couples with special needs children. Uh, Megan Goats um, has a wonderful contribution. She's also been on the podcast. One of the first people, I, first persons I listened to in this space. Um, another woman, Janie, talks about her story, area, Sarah. Some of these are under just first names. They're sensitive stories. And um, wonderful things like what to say on Mother's Day and what things are helpful. So that's a little bit about that chapter. And I hope that's helpful just to give insights and to help couples. Um, sure, a lot of families fit the Latter-day Saint mold. Um, ours does. Um, but a lot of families don't. Um, because of their children's situation and church may be difficult for them because they don't fit that mold. And so what can we do to help them feel wanted and maybe more importantly needed? And their journey um, is needed in our, in our church to create Zion. And I'll just read um, the conclusion, which is a whole one page or so. 
I wrote this book because I have a deep testimony of a restored doctrine and its power to bring hope, healing, grace, peace, and perspective for the challenges of mortality. For me, this doctrine is more than a statement of facts. It is real. It blesses my life, and I've seen it bless countless others. Further, in my experience with hundreds of Latter-day Saints working to stay, stay engaged with the church, I've come to realize that it is often the culture, not the doctrine, that causes them to consider leaving the boat. I wrote this book with the deep hope to improve our culture so more can benefit from restored doctrine. In these pages, we have heard many suggestions about how we can, what we can do in our circle of influence to improve our culture so more Latter-day Saints feel welcome and needed in the good ship Zion and more converts feel safe stepping aboard. We know that the good ship Zion will have to pass through stormy waters in the last day, but storms not need to come from within because of how we treat others. As Sister Ruth L. Renlund and Elder, Denra, Elder Dale G. Renlund said, the pain on the good ship Zion may be chipped and peeling, and there may be dents on the right side of the bow, but the ship will take us back to our heavenly parents. We can answer the ride for everyone by working to improve our church culture. As President Nelson said, quote, in a couple, if a couple in your ward gets divorced or a young missionary returns home earlier, a teenager doubts his testimony, they do not need your judgment. They need to express the experience the pure love of Jesus Christ reflected in your words of actions. End quote. Um, each person has unique contributions and all are needed in the boat. All the suggestions in the boat come down to this, each person being willing, being who they are, and each of us listening to, learning from, and loving each other. And then I'm just realizing here, I'm reminded I'm quoting Sister Patricia Holland, who has since passed away since I read this earlier and include it in the book, I'll read her quote, quote, our Father in heaven needs us as we are, and we are growing to become. He has intentionally made us different from one another, so that even in our imperfections, we can still fulfill his purposes. My greatest misery comes from when I feel I have to fit what others are doing or what I think others expect of me. I am most happy when I'm comfortable being me and trying to do what my Father in Heaven expects me to do. For many years, I tried to measure my off-time, quiet, reflective, thoughtful Pat Holland against the robust, bubbly, talkative, and energetic Jeff Holland, and others with likewise qualities. I have learned through several um, fatiguing failures that you can't have joy in being bubbly if you are not a bubbly person. It is a contradiction in terms. I have given up seeing myself as a plod person. Giving this up has freed me to embrace and rejoice in my own manner and personality. Somewhere, somehow, the Lord flipped the message onto my screen that my personality was created to fit precisely the mission and talents he gave me. I have found that I have untold abundant resources of energy to be myself. But the moment I indulge in imitation of my neighbor, I feel fractured and fatigued and find myself forever swimming upstream. When we frustrate God's plan for us, we derive his world and his kingdom of our unique contributions, end quote. And everything I'm quoting is in the book and footnoted. One of, I'll finish um, my conclusion. As we work together to improve church culture, we can do better at making space for each person's unique contributions. But this book doesn't need to end here on the last page. I invite you to write your own conclusion 
based on the impressions you felt by reading this book to better love and support yourself and better help others in your circle of influence. Together, we can improve Latter-day Saint culture and make a really big boat of the good ship Zion a better place, your friend Richard. So thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, encourage you to check out this book, share it with others. There's wonderful material for chalk and lessons and wonderful leader quotes for supportive of um, creating good ship Zion and improving our culture in the show notes. Um, I'll link to the Amazon link so you can get the book. Again, I invite you to leave a review at Amazon. That really helps. You're welcome to leave a review on iTunes of our podcast. That really helps. And uh, when it's out at Desert Book, that's the third thing you can do is to leave a review at Desert Book so more Latter-day Saints connect with this work. This work isn't my work. It's a community effort of all the people that have been on the podcast and all the people whose stories are in these books. Thank you, my friends, for listening to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm -hmm.